thank you very much for that very warm invitation for which I'm most grateful. And thank you all for coming to share this meeting. Christ, unique and universal. Of course, there is a very real sense in which every human being is unique. But this human being, this unique human being, is, as we have been singing in the hymns we have just sung, the one through whom all things were made, by whom and for whom all things exist. Not only unique, but universal. That is the Christian faith. It is, of course, the faith of a minority of the world's population. In this part of the world where we live, it is regarded by very, very many people as simply absurd or irrelevant. Even those who are Christians find it sometimes very difficult to believe because I think they have been led to accept a concept of God derived from other sources, and one could have quite a lecture on where the contemporary idea of God comes from, but an idea of God which so defines God as to make it incredible that God should walk the streets of Jerusalem and die on a cross. So how do we continue to affirm this faith? I've got five points, oddly enough. Most people brought up as Presbyterians have three points, but uh, obviously I've developed. <laughs> the first point. It's an affirmation of the truth. It's a statement about what is the case. Now, these are not the terms in which it is very often discussed. One of the most influential contemporary writers on religious matters, John Hick, states that the religions are not worldviews. They are not statements about what is the case. They are not descriptive statements of what the world is. But they are alternative answers to the question, how shall I be saved? They are not to be understood as different understandings of the world, different worldviews. They are to be understood as different paths to salvation. Well, on that, three points, I think, are in order. First of all, it would surely be rather odd if salvation could be found by believing something which was not true. To separate the quest for salvation from a belief about what is actually the case seems to be rather illogical. And secondly, when the matter is put in this way, the debate centers all the time on the self. And we shall be, I shall be pointing out over and over again that this is one of our fundamental problems in our contemporary culture, that everything centers on the individual self, and there is a less and less clear understanding of the fact that there is a world outside which has to be explored and about which we can be right or we can be wrong. But this way of stating the matter makes it all a question of how shall I be saved? And the third comment is 
that if the Christian gospel is true, in other words, if God has done those amazing things which we celebrate at every Christian service, if we can sing as we did at Christmas, Lo, amid the, the manger lies he who built the starry skies. If that is true, if the creator and sustainer of all that exists has actually done those things which the gospel affirms that he has done, then the central question is not, how shall I be saved? The central question is, how shall this glorious God be glorified? The whole center is shifted. It is a question, how can this glorious God who has done this thing be glorified? But we believe as Christians that what we affirm about Jesus Christ is not just a symbolic way of saying that we accept certain kind of values or that we accept a certain way of salvation. It is an affirmation of the truth, public truth, which is therefore true for all. The second point, how can we know or how could we know that this statement is true? The typical response that we get in our kind of society, as you know, to a firm affirmation of Christian faith will be, that may be true for you, is not true for me. It's not meaningful for me. How do we deal with that? It's, of course, part of the whole pervasive relativism and, 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 and subjectivism of our culture. The pervasive belief that ultimate reality is unknowable and that all that we can know are perhaps facets which one person sees one side of and another another. I suppose that the single name that has been most influential is that of Kant and his affirmation that you cannot know the reality, the noumenon, that will always be hidden. You can only know <coughs> the phenomena, those that are the things that are visible to our eyes or touchable by our senses. That has had an enormous influence, but of course it, that is not the only root of it. But it is worth making the elementary point that any claim to know the limits of knowledge is itself a claim to go beyond those limits. How do you know that there is something there which is other than what you see? Every This claim is often made in a spirit of humility. You shouldn't pretend to know the truth. You should just say, this is how the truth seems to me. And it is put with an air of humility. But of course, it is actually a very arrogant claim because it is a claim to know that there is something beyond what is visible or tangible, or in this connection, that there is something beyond what God has done in Jesus Christ. But how do you know? This pervasive skepticism and relativism, which discounts all firm affirmations of truth, 
is one of the pervasive features of our culture and we have to be aware of it and ready to deal with it. And of course it is again part of the same problem that I referred to. If everything is centered in the self, if the self is the ultimate reality, if the question how can I develop my full potential or even how can I be saved, if that is the central issue, then we lose sight of the most fundamental fact of all, namely that there is a real world to be known, to be explored, about which it is possible to be right and possible to be wrong. A real world beyond the self. There is a part of our culture which is the most vigorous part of it, and that is the part that goes on in the departments of science. The split in our culture, which I'm going to refer to later, which C.P. Snow talks about as the two cultures, visible on every university campus, between the science faculty where people deal with facts which you know, and the faculties of arts and humanities where people be have beliefs and values, but we don't say this is right or wrong. I was talking to a professor of science in Birmingham University traveling to London one day, and I said to him, it seems to me the difference between your department and the arts and humanities department is that you believe there's a real world to be explored, and they don't. He said, that's quite true, but their infection is getting into us. <laughs> when Einstein announced a unique fact with universal implications, namely that the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second whether you are traveling towards the light or away from the light, that whatever you are doing and wherever you are and whatever speed you are traveling in at whatever direction, the speed of light is uniform at 186,000 miles per second. The response of the scientific community was not to say, well, that may be true for Einstein, but it's not meaningful for me. <laughs> is it true or is it not? To begin with, a great many scientists said it's not true. They had to die off before another generation came up. But how was it, as it were, established as truth? Not because it could be proved from somewhere else, but because if you took it as a starting point, you found that it opened up all kinds of new possibilities of truth and of knowledge and of action. And therefore it has come to be accepted as a part of the truth, as science understands it. My point here, of course, is that the, there is this very powerful part of our culture which does still believe that there is truth to be known and that one can be right or wrong about it, and which, when there is a difference of opinion between uh, two scientists or two groups of scientists, they may go on for a long time debating with each other, but they will never settle down to say, well, there is one kind of physics in Tokyo and another kind of physics in London. They will go on until they have found either that one or the other is true or else that there is some higher truth that embraces them both. Here we have this, the two cultures, the one which talks about facts which we know and about which you can be right or wrong, and there's no harm in telling a person that he's wrong about the facts. And the other side, a world of beliefs and values and experiences about which you don't say right or wrong. You say, well, that may be meaningful for you, it's not meaningful for me. 
And of course, this has affected theology. Theology, which was once the queen of the sciences, has unfortunately got stuck in the Department of Arts and Humanities, at least in a great many universities. There was a time when you used objective language. God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. A really up-to-date theological professor, of course, would not say that now. He would say Moses had a religious experience. <laughs> His colleague in the Department of Astronomy, if he spies a new comet, will not come home and tell his wife, I've had an astronomical experience. <laughs> he has had an astronomical experience. If he hadn't, he wouldn't have seen the comet. There has been a stimulation of the retina by a tiny little ray of light. And the reason why he knows it is a comet is because he has been trained for years and years and years in the whole tradition of science and of astronomy so that that little spark on the retina of his eye enables him to say there is a comet. So there is a huge subjective element in that statement. If he had not had that kind of training, if he was not part of this scientific culture which has produced that training, he would not know that it was a comet. So there is an enormous subjective conditioning of his knowledge, as there is of all human knowledge. But nevertheless, he doesn't say, I've had an astronomical experience. He says, I've seen a comet. But of course, in the theological department, we wouldn't put it that way. We wouldn't say Jesus rose from the dead. We would say the disciples had a religious experience. And so we move, you see, in our culture from Jesus rose from the dead to the disciples had an experience. We move from very God of very God to my personal saviour. And the point is that, of course, we must not accept the separation. How could he be my personal saviour if he were not very God of very God? But why do we have to put it all in this purely subjective way? I think it's a very good rule when somebody talks about experience to say, experience of what? If I may tell a naughty story, I remember once when I uh, was having a conversation with a, the Swamiji, the Hindu head of a Hindu monastery in Kanjiburam, the Ramakrishna monastery. We had become very good friends and he was telling me about an experience he had which was all lights and flashes and wonderful spectacles. And after he had finished, I took my courage in both hands and I said to him, Swamiji, that's wonderful, but I think I could have produced the same effect by beating you on the head with a big stick. <laughs> he laughed, fortunately. <laughs> but we have always to ask the question, experience of what? Of course there is no knowing without experience. But you have to say, experience of what? What is the reality which has given rise to this experience? And how do you understand this reality? And have you understood it rightly? I come back again later to the question about how do we know. But let me try to approach it by my third point, which is what kind of truth statement are we making when we say Jesus Christ is unique and universal? In what sense are these words used? Now, of course, there are many points at which Christian teaching and practice resembles that of other religions. 
and it is common in our culture to treat Christianity as one of a class of things called religions. Now, that, of course, is a very, very modern development. Until about, what, 300 years ago, religion just meant piety. The idea that there are things called <coughs> religions in the plural, uh, of which Christianity is one, is, of course, a very modern idea, and it is all to do with this privatizing of religion of which I've been speaking. But it is true that there are many parallels. M many, many of the sayings of Jesus can be paralleled elsewhere. And um, if, if, if Christianity is a, a set of ideas, of doctrines, of teachings, then there are very large elements of overlap with other uh, religious traditions. In what sense are we saying that Jesus is unique and universal? During my years in Kanchipuram, which is a holy city of the Hindus and was the birthplace and the teaching place of the great theologian um, Ramanuja, who taught a very remarkable theistic religion which is so similar to Christianity that um, it has the same heresies. It has Pelagian and Augustinian heresies called by other names, the cat school and the monkey school. And um, some of you may have read the book of Otto, India's Religion of Grace, and Christianity compared and contrasted. And there is an enormous amount there uh, of, of language which can be completely taken over by a Christian and the many of the devotional poems that have been uh, written and are used in worship in that tradition can be used and are used by Christians. I put myself to school uh, for some time with one of the teachers of this particular form of Hinduism. And in the course of the long discussions we had, my teacher once said to me, what do you mean by salvation? And I did my best to answer his question, centering on the whole matter of sin and forgiveness. When I'd finished, he said, now that's very interesting, because apart from the actual name of Jesus, that is exactly what I would have said. So I said to him, if you can say the same words that I have said, Tell me, what is your assurance, the ground of your assurance that God does forgive your sins? And without a moment's hesitation, he said, if he wouldn't, I would go to a God who would. Now that little sentence opened the window for me. No Christian could have said that. Because for a Christian, there is the background of the Bible with this tremendous sense of the reality of God who acts in history so that the center is still in God. But if the center is me and my need of salvation, then, of course, there is nothing to choose between these two. And from that day onwards, when preaching in the open streets to, to Hindus, I never started by talking about sin and for, about our need of, of forgiveness. I began by talking about God, about the reality of God. The, the, the background of the Bible, the way in which we as Christians 
are nourished in a whole way of understanding the world which is shaped by the biblical story of God's mighty acts from creation and right through the whole story until the consummation at the end. I have another Hindu friend who is a very brilliant student, both of Hinduism and of the Bible. He has, I don't think he's still a Hindu, but he is not yet a Christian, but he is a very, very able man. And he once said to me, I don't understand why you Christians bring the Bible to us as a book of religion. I don't see it as a book of religion. We have plenty books of religion already. We don't need any more. I see your Bible as a quite unique interpretation of cosmic history from the beginning of creation to the end of the whole human story within that cosmic story, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. And there is no other book in the world which in any sense whatever can compare with that. In that sense, your Bible is completely unique. And I think that he is right. But if we take that as our starting point, then the central question is not the question that my Hindu friend asked, how can I be saved? The central question is, how shall God be glorified? That becomes the central question. That's the question that we are taught to regard as central every time we say the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's the central drive of our faith. Let's face it, the question, how can I be saved, was the question of a pagan jailer in an awful fright. It is not the question of Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Paul. Their question is, how shall God be glorified? And the Bible, when we take it as a whole, one of the problems of the modern critical use of the Bible, in spite of the good things that it has given us, it has lost for many of us the sense of the Bible as a whole in its, in its canonical shape. It is important, it is valuable to analyze, to dissect, to see how the different parts came to be written and what their relation to each other is and so forth. But having done all that, what is important is that we take it as a whole which is, which is not just an alternative story, but the story, the true story of the whole cosmos, of the whole human race, of God's chosen people within that human race, and of me at this moment, because I do not know who I am or what I am to do if I do not know what the story is of which I am a part. When we allow the Bible to become the whole framework of our thinking, when we take enough time with the Bible, I've often reminded of a remark of Einstein who said, if you want to understand science, don't listen to what scientists say, but watch what they do. And I think there's a lot to be said in the same way about the Bible. Don't listen to what people say about the Bible, but watch what they do. Do they really make it? The whole framework of it. Do they soak themselves in it? Do they take time, day by day, to read not the favorite bits, but the whole story, seeing it as a whole and seeing each part in relation to the whole? 
When you do that, there is etched into your soul, bit by bit, time t it takes time, it takes perhaps a lifetime, but there is etched into your soul this way of understanding the whole human situation where the central figure is God, his agony as he burns with love and wrath for his beloved but stupid and rebellious and stubborn children, endlessly patient, endlessly unrelenting in his will that we should be holy as he is holy. And the human story that the Bible tells of real decisions between obedience and disobedience, between living in the love of God and living for the love of self. And this endless struggle between the holy love of God and the sinful, stubborn stupidity of human beings, and yet overarching it all, the certainty that God at the beginning and God at the end holds it all in his purpose. So this is the uniqueness of the Bible, a cosmic story seen as a unity with this as the center point, the crux, the crisis, the place where all the issues that confront us as human beings come to a focus, the cross of Jesus Christ, the place where all the ultimate issues of human life and death, of sin and forgiveness, of freedom and destiny are met and measured and mastered. So the uniqueness and the universality of Jesus, it seems to me, are to be understood only against this background of the whole biblical story. He is the unique center of the universal story, which is the true story, not the story that the world tells about itself, not the story that we're reading all the time in the papers and hearing on the newscasts, the real story of which the point is not the rise of civilization or the rise of our national greatness or whatever. The point of history has been made once for all at the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I come to my fourth point. What is involved in this belief? There are, of course, very influential views which regard history as meaningless. The natural way of understanding the human story is to take the picture that we get from nature. Everything in nature appears to follow a cyclical pattern. Things are born, they grow, they mature, they decay and they die and another generation comes. That is true in the vegetable world, true in the animal world. It is true of the history of civilizations, of empires, of nations, 
Why should this not be the way to understand human life as a whole? That seems so obvious to the Indian mind that the twin doctrines of karma and samsara, the doctrine that all human life is an endless circle in which you are ever enjoying or enduring the fruits of your previous actions, that has seemed to be so obvious that it has never been questioned in all the revolutions of Indian thought from the Buddha to the Mahatma. It is simply, obviously, what is the case. And that cyclical view of history has constantly reappeared in European history. What you may call the natural way, which means that history does not have a purpose. It is simply an endless cycle of returns. Or there are views which see history as meaningful, but which find the clue to its meaning elsewhere. For a thousand years from the time of Augustine onwards, history, world history, was taught in the European schools and colleges as on the basis of the framework of the Bible. After the break of the Renaissance and the Reformation, History began to be taught in European schools as the history of the nation, because the nation-state had replaced God as the ultimate source of succor and of loyalty. Now, of course, we have risen above that, and we teach history as the story of civilization, so that the key points in the story are Greek philosophy and science, Roman law, the... Renaissance with its recovery of classical learning, the Industrial Revolution, and so on. These are the key points. And of course, this interpretation of history means that the point of history is that it has produced people like us. We are civilization, and therefore we are the point of history. In the 18th century, there was born this concept of progress, which, has, which in the 19th century dominated European thought, the idea that we were moving necessarily towards a perfect future of freedom and justice. In its Marxist form, that has now collapsed. In its liberal capitalist form, it still seems to be flourishing, but there are certainly the signs of death. Then there is the Islamic view, which shares with the Christian understanding the view that the purpose of history is that God should rule over all his world and all his people, that all human beings should one day become part of the house of Islam, should, in other words, submit to God's rule. But, of course, the difference here is that the Christian vision cannot accept the Muslim idea that ultimate truth will be identified with absolute power, as in the Muslim theocratic state. The difference between, between us is symbolized in the fact that when the Prophet rode into Mecca, at his, the decisive moment of his ministry, he rode to conquer by the sword 
and that when Jesus, at the decisive moment of his ministry, rode into Jerusalem, he went there to die. And that means that for the Christian, there cannot be an absolute union of power and love within this creation, but only on the other side of death. And that is why the Muslim must emphatically deny the reality of the cross. If we go back to the Bible story, to the Bible picture of history, you have a cosmic history, a history of the whole creation, and the clue is in those acts and words of the character who is, as it were, the hero of the story, the God of Israel, who is also the God of the nations. And the pattern, the same pattern, runs right through the Bible, and you see it over and over again, whether you read the Bible in small pieces or whether you take, for example, the whole book of Isaiah with the different parts of which it is made up. The same pattern appears of calling, of promise, of disobedience, of catastrophe, of punishment, of mercy, of conversion, and of a new calling and a new vision. But it comes to the crisis when the agony of God over his creation has to be enacted in flesh and blood in the ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is what Islam cannot accept. When I was recently addressing a meeting of Muslims and Christians in Birmingham, I ventured to say that I thought that one could point out the difference in this way. If you want to help someone in trouble, you can write a letter or you can go and visit. The Muslims tell us that God wrote a letter. We say that he came. God himself, veiled in the weakness of a human being, becomes part of the agony and struggle in actual human flesh and blood. Total love and obedience to the Father, which draws upon him all the hostility of this fallen world, God's rebel family. But then, because it was not possible that he should be holden of death, there comes this resurrection from the dead, which is, of course, a unique event. It cannot be fitted into any other way of understanding the human situation except one of which it is the starting point. I, I, I think that it's very, very important to make this point. The resurrection, of course, is implausible from the point of view of our accepted worldview. The only thing with which it can be compared in the Christian tradition is the creation of the world itself. Just as the physicists tell us that they can go back to within a few seconds of the Big Bang, but that there is a point beyond which you cannot use any of the tools of human knowledge to say what was there before there was anything. You have to accept the creation as the starting point for your understanding of the physical world. 
So also with the resurrection of Jesus. It is, we cannot, as it were, go behind it and, and explain it in terms of something else. It has to be a starting point. But when it is accepted as a starting point, as the beginning of a new creation, it then opens up for us a vast new prospect of rational understanding of the whole human situation, a far more fully embracing rationality than that which any other worldview, including the contemporary scientific worldview, can offer. And the church is entrusted with this secret. Of course, the message was not the, 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 the story, the fact of the resurrection, was entrusted to the company that had been prepared for it. You often see stupid things written by theologians and others um, to the effect that the risen Jesus only appeared to believers and that therefore their testimony is to be questioned. That is surely nonsense. They were not believers until the risen Christ came to them. They were unbelievers. But the point is that this this new creation is a hidden reality, just as the presence of God was veiled in the humanity of Jesus. So the reality of this foretaste of the new creation is veiled in the weakness and foolishness of the church, of which we are also aware. But that is of the very essence of the matter, that the church, with all its weakness and all its folly, is charged with the responsibility of bearing through history the secret of this new creation. And however much we often despair of the church, however much we are often led to pessimism about the church, we have to keep firm our faith in the promise of Jesus Christ that where two or three are gathered together in his name, he will be with them. And we have to remember that it is to the church that there is entrusted the story. And if the church does not tell it, no one else will. And so, therefore, there is hope and there is witness. The witness is the witness of the Holy Spirit. God has done this thing. That is unique and it is universal in its implications. It gives us the clue which we must follow to the very end of time and to the ends of the earth. Now that does not require us to deny all the truth and goodness and beauty that is to be found in men and women who have never heard of Jesus or who have, having heard, have not accepted. There is something very wrong when we try to denigrate or marginalize or downplay the goodness that we find in Muslims and Hindus and Marxists and secularists. That is surely to dishonor God who gives his grace freely to all and who has not left himself without witness anywhere. But it is equally wrong to use the fact that God has indeed blessed all his children and that there are signs of God's blessing to be found everywhere 
we must not use that fact to marginalize this central reality that God has done this thing and that it is so marvelous that we have to tell it to everyone who will hear. I find it very unfortunate that these two things are often put against each other. I think the paradigm story is that of Cornelius. You remember that in Acts we read that God told Cornelius, your prayers and your offerings have been accepted. So Cornelius is not cut off from God. There is dealing between Cornelius and God. But there is a story that has to be told and Cornelius must hear it. And Peter must go, though he didn't want to. And when the story is told, then something happens which is not just Cornelius and his family becoming Christians. It is something more profound than that. Namely, that Peter and his company have learned more of what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. Authentic mission never denies the reality of God's work among those who have not heard the name of Jesus, but honestly welcomes it and thanks God for it. But at the same time, recognizes that when the story is told, the Holy Spirit takes charge of the situation and does things both to the missionary and to those to whom the gospel comes. And you remember how when Peter came back to Jerusalem, he was put on the, ma on the mat for having done what he ought not to have done. As they would say in Scotland, he was called to the bar of the General Assembly and required to give an answer. And he told the story. And we read that the whole assembly kept silence. And those of us who go to general assemblies know that that's a miracle. <laughs> but the church had to learn that the gospel was greater than it thought. That to say that Jesus is Lord means more than we thought it meant. And that is the authentic experience of the church in its worldwide mission. That as we go, we learn more fully of what it means to say that Jesus is unique and universal. And so I come to my last point, and that is to go back to something that I touched on before. If you're asked, how do you know? I'm sure you have the same experience that I have when I'm trying to share the Christian faith with a friend. And he will say, but how do you prove it? How can you prove it? What would be implied by that question? It would imply, would it not, that there is something else, let us call it X, which, is, which we all know to be true, and from which you can then prove that the gospel story is true. But then I would have to ask, how do you know that X is true? And the only way of answering that would be to say, there is a statement Y, which is true. And therefore, we know that Y is true, so X is true, so X is true, so the gospel is true. But then, of course, what's the ground for Y? You have to go back to Z, and so on ad infinitum. The idea that you can find some basis of certitude more reliable than what God himself has done in Jesus Christ is one of the abiding illusions of our culture. But it's an illusion that is so widely spread that it's awfully difficult to tackle it. The idea that there should be available to us some kind of certitude. Of course, I suppose it goes back to Descartes. Descartes undertook to prove the existence of God. And I've recently been reading a fascinating book by a Jesuit, Michael Buckley, called The Roots of Modern Atheism, 
And you'll be surprised to know that as a Jesuit, he finds the roots of modern atheism in Thomas Aquinas. Um, <laughs> that's putting it a little crudely. But uh, the, the point, the, the whole attempt to prove the existence of God by inference from something which is not God. And so why does it come that Aquinas can prove the existence of God in Book 1 without any reference to Jesus Christ at all, and then in Book 4 tell us that Jesus is the way by which we come to know God? This attempt to prove the existence of God by grounds other than God's own revelation of himself has done two things. First of all, as I hinted at the beginning, it has given to us a concept of God which cannot be reconciled with the Christian story. That potentate up in the sky, that monad, that monarch, cannot have been crucified on a cross. It's impossible. It has given us a false conception of God. And secondly, it has given us a false illusion that there is a kind of certitude available to us which does not depend upon the grace of God, which does not depend upon what God has done himself for us in Jesus Christ. When I've been discussing these issues with people involved in interfaith dialogue, I often have to remind them that when God created the universe, he did not provide a spectator's gallery. There is no point from which we can stand and look around at all the world's religions and say which ones we approve of and which we don't. There is no such standpoint. We are all on the ground floor together. Muslims, Hindus, Marxists, Buddhists, whatever. We're all together on the ground floor. But we are called upon to bear witness to the truth of what God has done decisively for the whole human race in Jesus Christ. And we affirm that by faith because God himself has called us to do so. And finally, how do, if you come back again to the question, how do you know that it is true? If a scientist, well, may, let's go back to Einstein, how do we come now to think that Einstein's statement was true? Not because it could be proved from something else, but when it was accepted as a starting point, it became the means by which all kinds of other problems were solved. You, you, and that is the only way in which the Christian faith is proved to be true. If a scientist believes that he has found some truth, the way he tests its truth is by publishing it and by inviting everyone to test it. And it is as it leads out into wider truth that we come to realize its own truth. So that if one asks what is the basis of dialogue between people of different faiths, I would answer that the dialogue takes place not when we try to compare each other's starting points, as when we meet each other in the actual business of life and find out which way of understanding life actually makes sense and enables us to cope with the problems of life. So that the mission of the church is not just the proclaiming of the gospel. It is, if, if, if I may say so, the exegesis of the gospel. I hope this word exegesis is not uh, an impossible word. Um, it, it, I, I was once um, giving an address and some poor typist had to type up the address from a tape. 
And while she was doing it, her boss looked round the door and said, are you getting on all right? She said, it's all right, except I don't understand why every now and then he says, exit Jesus. <laughs> the, the, the mission of the church is the unfolding of the gospel. As Peter in the house of Cornelius learned more of what the gospel means, so as we go out to the ends of the earth, and as we go out to meet every human situation and all the new and unknown problems that we face in the world, it is as we go out in the faith of the gospel that we learn more and more of what the gospel means and that the truth of the gospel is validated in the actual experience of the life of faith. But of course, in the end of the day, if we are pressed for the question, how do you know that it is true? There is only one possible answer, and that is that we await the judgment of God on the last day. Paul says we know in part, but then we shall, be, we shall know as we are known. And there is no escaping from the fact that the Christian life is a life of faith in which we, we venture all that we have on the faith that Jesus is Lord. And if one is criticized by the theologians, for the awful sin of fideism, that is to say, of simply believing a thing as a, as a leap of faith, as a leap in the dark. The answer is that it is not that kind of a leap in the dark at all. It is a response to a calling. And if God has put me in a place where Jesus Christ has shown himself to me as Lord, and called me to follow him. I have to follow. And I follow in the faith that on the last day, the many, many, many things that I don't understand will become clear, and that above all it will be clear that Jesus is Lord. So who's going to give the first question? Tony Adamson. I have a member of my congregation who constantly asks me to prove it's true. Um, is it your contention that uh, the Christian gospel is true in exactly the same universal way that two times two equals four? Uh, the question, if I may repeat it, is... Uh, is there a similarity between the Christian gospel and how you prove it and uh, the fact that two times two equals four? No, that's not the question. <laughs> <laughs> Do you prove? <laughs> you clarify the question. It, the question was about the nature of truth. The, not about the nature of verification. Bishop, answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> tell us what the question is. Answer it first, then um, tell us what the question yes, is. Yes, I'm not quite sure what the question is. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, it, it, it is obviously a, a truth statement of a different kind. I mean, there are many different kinds of truth statements. Um, a statement that you make about the faithfulness and honesty of a person is a different kind of thing from a statement that you make about um, 
the, 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 I mean, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a kind of tautology, isn't it? I mean, the definition of 4 is that it is 2 plus 2. Um, it's not a... If, if I can again quote Einstein at you, um, Einstein, in many different occasions and in different ways, said that insofar as the statements of mathematics are certain, they make no contact with reality. Insofar as they make contact with reality, they are not certain. Now, it is certain that 2 plus 2 equals 4, but that statement makes no contact with reality. It's just a definition of what 4 is. Um, uh, you, you will then begin to talk about 2, two what's, and, and so on. Um, so that uh, it, it's, not, it's not a tautology, but I would affirm that it is a statement of, of the truth in the sense that it is something with which all of us in the end will have to deal whether we like it or not. Is that uh, helpful? Well, I hope it's helpful to the member of my congregation. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if, if, I, I don't think we should be ashamed. I mean, I used to be pressed very much by Hindu friends. Why are you so intransigent about Jesus? Why can't you recognize that Jesus is just one of the many religious leaders of the world? At the end of the day, I can only say, because Jesus has called me to be his witness. Now, that's a perfectly valid answer. Um, the, the, the epistemological question has to have a theological answer. If God is, and if he has called me, then that is a sufficient ground. But the problem you have, you see, is that when people want a proof of that kind, what they are really asking for is that they can um, prove the truth without reference to God. Uh, and that's where I think you see this fatal mistake of Descartes uh, that, um, th that has bedeviled us ever since. The idea that we can, we can, as it were, say to God, you know, thank you very much, I can find out all I need to know about you without you telling me. Uh, which is really what is implied in the Cartesian position. And it is so deep in our culture that it's very hard to deal with. But I think we have to have the courage to say that to that question, the right answer and the adequate answer is that God in Jesus Christ has called me to testify. Can I just um, say, would you, would you agree that uh, the, the question, which is what I thought was being asked, so can I ask, that, can I ask this question, that um, the nature of proof as it were, varies. That's to say, there's not one model of how you prove things. And the critical thing is that in any area of life, whether I prove that so-and-so loves someone or that some H2O equals water or what have you, that we use the appropriate proof for that occasion. And uh, what is the appropriate Christian, which is perhaps what I thought the question was, the appropriate proof for the Christian truth. Yes, there, obviously there are different kinds of truth statements. Uh, but I do think that we are, we are, our thinking tends to be distorted by the prevalence of a false understanding of science to the effect that it is an enterprise which, in which faith plays no part uh, and in which you do not need, uh, that you, you, in which you can you can divorce knowledge from personal responsibility. And that is the fundamental uh, error of our culture. The idea, every statement that you make has to be a responsible statement. But the illusion that we have is that there is a kind of knowledge for which we don't have to take responsibility because it is, quote, unquote, objective. 
Now, as the philosophers of science are making so clear to us, science itself is based on a faith foundation. The whole modern enterprise of science, which has arisen within the Christian world and is the result of a thousand years of Christian teaching, rests upon a faith that there is in the universe a rational structure which in some way corresponds to the rational structure of our minds. Now that is a pure act of faith. You cannot prove it from elsewhere. But taking it as a starting point, you can validate it over wider and wider fields and, 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 and come to understand more and more of what the rationality of the universe means. But it rests upon a faith commitment. And um, what is more, the picture of science that people like Karl Popper have given as a first-class scientist, John Polkinghorn, will tell you, is a false picture of science. It is not true that scientists abandon a hypothesis as soon as uh, some example turns up that contradicts it. If scientists did that, scientists would st science would stagnate in five years. Uh, they, they, they hold on to a hypothesis against all the odds until they find a better one. Uh, but until then, they hold on to it. Uh, and, and there is an enormous amount of faith commitment involved in the whole work of science. But we have been fed an illusion of a kind of knowledge for which I do not have to take personal responsibility. And, that's the, uh, and when the person says, how do you prove it, they're really asking you, how can I uh, be, uh, be, uh, be um, excused the faith commitment that is involved in following Jesus? Thank you very much. Next question. In basing your belief in God on your calling, your having been called, aren't you going back to basing it on your personal experience? Uh, the question is, basing faith on the calling, is that not basing it on personal experience? Well, I would say two things. First of all, the calling doesn't just come straight out of heaven. It comes through all the, all the teaching that I've had. Uh, in my life from the Christian church, from my family, and so forth. Uh, it's not just um, a, a kind of mysterious thing straight from heaven. It's part of a whole... Um, it's part of, of, the, of the witness of the church. But um, secondly, I am not suggesting that experience is not important. Of course, we don't know anything unless we have, I do not know that this is made of wood, unless I have the experience of feeling its texture on my fingertips. But that doesn't make it merely subjective. Uh, the, 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 the experiential, the subjective element of it uh, is, is absurd if it is cut off from that of which it is experienced. And yes, there is a profoundly personal element in the calling of God uh, that comes to each of us through many, many, many different ways. But that doesn't make it subjective. It is, it is, it is God who calls. Am I, am I answering your question or evading it? Okay. Well, I would say three things. One, that I find it difficult to see how the two halves of your question hang together because the fact that Jesus omitted the word about God's vengeance would suggest that the emphasis of his ministry was on the first part of that verse. But uh, 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 nevertheless, I do, of course, agree that the, um, the reality of the wrath of God 
is a, a, a reality which we cannot evade. We cannot speak about the love of God if we do not also speak about the wrath of God. And certainly the words of Jesus contain very, very grave warnings about the possibility of missing the way. Um, but but I, I would have thought that the fact that Jesus cut that verse in half and gave only the first half is evidence of the fact that the primary thrust of his ministry was as stated in John 3, the Son of Man did not come to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I don't dispute that, but what is the question? Sorry, the question, the question is that um, uh, we, uh, or at least the question is saying that we do not actually emphasize and fight for justice in the way perhaps the Muslims do. Um, but, of course, part of our understanding is that God is one day going to bring judgment and justice. Yes, I, I think, I, mean, I do agree that the doctrine of the last judgment is a very important doctrine and that it is much neglected. I agree with that. I would not agree with the statement that Christians are not expected to fight for justice. Uh, I think we are called upon to seek justice, although we know always that our human justice is never the justice of God, that all of our attempts at human justice are ambiguous, partial, uh, distorted by sin. But nevertheless, I do believe that, um, I think that the teaching of Romans 13 about the powers that be uh, is very clear and is in line with the rest of the teaching of the Bible, that God does intend that there should be an agency or agencies in human affairs which seek to establish at least uh, rough justice, shall we say. Uh, I think that this is one of the important points where it's so important to hold the whole canon together. In, Sa in Second Samuel 8 and 9, you have two chapters about kingship. One of them speaks of kingship, the demand for kingship as being disobedience, and the other shows the king being anointed by God. Now, we have to hold both these things together, just as we have to hold together Romans 13 and Revelation 13, where you have two very, very different pictures of the Roman Empire, that all human justice is ambiguous. But nevertheless, it is, I believe, God's will that there should be agencies which um, punish the wicked and reward the, the righteous, even though it's always distorted and stained by human sin. If I may add, perhaps the Christian Institute interested in having something of God's justice in the present situation, insofar as in minimal, tiny ways we're able to help secure that. Next question. Uh, um, Ida Glasser. Bishop, you've, you've um, clearly stated some of the things that you find are against the whole Christian way of thinking within our Western culture. Have you done any thinking about um, hopeful points and points of contact, um, best points to start in trying to communicate Christian faith to Westerners? Points of hope in Western culture, that's the question. I don't know how many of you here follow the international, the, the, the ecumenical lectionary, but if you do, you're in the middle of Jeremiah. Uh, and it's difficult to be very optimistic about <laughs> contemporary culture. <laughs> I, I, I confess that the more I read of Jeremiah, the more I feel that he's talking to us, um, because I, I do feel so deeply that um, there's so much 
in, in our culture which is contrary to God's will. But um, yes, indeed, of course, there are, I mean, thank God, the, the, the Christian church still exists and, and still bears witness and uh, still in many, many quiet ways does effectively the work of the kingdom. I don't know that I've got a kind of ready-made list of, of, of points in our culture that make good points of contact, except that, I mean, I think we have to, I, I, I think that we, we have a double task. The whole kind of rationalism which took over at the Enlightenment and has been so dominant at the, uh, up to this day is being attacked now from various sides, particularly from the New Age movement. And um, this creates a situation, I think, where we have uh, an important word to speak in which we try to, uh, to uh, affirm the elements of truth in the whole rationalist movement, the fact that we are called upon to think clearly and to um, exercise our critical faculties and uh, that we must not be carried away by the kind of irrationalism that is becoming so prevalent. I think that the church is, has a tremendous duty to defend rationality against irrationality. But um, at the same time, we have to recognize that the kind of rationality that the Enlightenment recommended, and above all, the exaltation of the faculty of doubt over the faculty of faith is something that we do really have to, to tackle. Um, the whole, all knowing involves both faith and doubt, but doubt is secondary. And the exaltation of the principle of doubt over the principle of faith, because people somehow think that it's more honest to doubt than to, than to believe, which is ridiculous. It is good to doubt some things and good to believe other things. Um, but we do have to... I, I was at a meeting the other day when somebody got a bit angry about what I said and, and said, but must we not accept as fundamental the uh, commitment of our culture that all dogma must be open to question? To which I said, I'm quite happy to accept that if you also accept that that dogma must be open to question. <laughs> Uh, I think that we've, we've got to sort of hold the balance between uh, a kind of irrationality uh, that is uh, losing the good achievements of the Enlightenment and, um, on the other hand, a kind of skepticism um, which is leading to the total destruction of meaning as happens in the contemporary deconstruction movement in literary theory. I don't know... <laughs> I don't think I've been a very, a very good answer. And I, I, I wrestle with that question myself, I must say, and I think I ought to wrestle more with it. Thank you for the question. Next question. Can I follow on from that question then, David Mayhew, and, and ask uh, more negatively uh, on this whole issue of, uh, uh, going back to Jeremiah perhaps, um, pointing out where people are wrong Mistaken. It's been very refreshing to hear you talk about often. You know, that's nonsense. It's ridiculous. They're wrong. But as you, as you are very well aware, evidently, that can lead you into a lot of unpopularity. 
I wonder then if you'd like to say a little bit more about where we as Christians should be saying to one another within the church and further afield, you are wrong. Give me your reasons. Why do you think that? That isn't an option for Christians. And drawing on ourselves the kind of unpopularity that Jeremiah was familiar with and agonized with. Yes, a question, how do we say or where should we say we are wrong, you are wrong, and uh, the consequences of doing that. Yes, I think we do need much more. Um, I've always, I've always been grateful for some words that were used in the first message of the first General Assembly of the World Council of Churches when they said that uh, among our reasons for coming together is that we should receive mutual correction. And it seems to me my understanding of the ecumenical movement is that if people accept Jesus Christ as Lord and then do things or say things which seem to me to be uh, inconsistent with that, then I have a duty to say to them, how do you reconcile your confession of Jesus as Lord with this belief or doctrine? And that within the community of faith, we have to wrestle with one another and correct one another. And I think that one of the important functions of the church in our kind of anarchic pluralism is to develop a truly plural society where there is the freedom of people to explore and, and research and, and experiment and try out ideas, but at the same time the discipline of a mutual correction on the basis of a common tradition. Uh, and uh, I think the church can then become an example to the rest of the world about how differences of belief can be handled. And I think we need to be the difficulty isn't, isn't it, is that we, rather than correcting one another, we label one another. Um, that fellow's a fundamentalist, I don't need to listen to him. He's a liberalist, nonsense, you know. Um, but, but instead of meeting each other, we tend to label each other. And that is awfully destructive. But, uh, if I may, I mean, uh, that speaks very much to my experience. And the problem is it's worse than the church. I find it easier often to disagree and have that kind of discussion with people outside the church, I'm not talking about any one particular church, you know, fellow Christians, uh, uh, than I do with people right outside who, who expect to be challenged often rather more. Yes, it's harder uh, to, the question is, it's harder to disagree. It's not a question, so it's a comment. It's harder to disagree within the church than outside. I wonder if part of the reason for that is the fragility of our belief. I think that there is a great deal of timidity and uncertainty among Christians. And if you don't have that confidence, then you're not free to be challenged. Uh, there has to be this very deep commitment to Jesus Christ, uh, which makes it possible to say, well, then I can cope with a whole lot of differences and challenges, because that is unshakable. Uh, at the back, Brian, could you? Brian Seaman. One, one of the things we seem to find difficult to do as Christians is to tell other faiths that they're wrong. Uh, can you guide us as to how best to do that? How do you tell other faiths that they're wrong? That's the question. I, I don't think that, that, that you start off uh, an evangelistic approach. <laughs> I'm afraid a lot of missionaries in the 19th century did that, and it didn't do any good. Um, I would want to come back to the point that I've made. I would want to affirm the good things that I find uh, among people who are not Christians, but then tell the story and um, f 
Of course, I think it's tremendously important that in the Acts of the Apostles, all the great evangelistic preachings are in response to a question. What's going on here? Explain to us. Tell us. And that's the ideal missionary situation when there is a reality present which then causes people to ask a question, what's behind it? But no, I wouldn't start by telling Hindu that he's wrong. Uh, I, I, would, I would listen to him and, and, and I would welcome the elements of truth that I find, but I would also want to tell him the story. Uh, and and uh, that's not contrary. He must draw his own conclusions. I think it's a little different when you're, when you're dealing with fellow Christians because you've got a common ground. You, you, here is Jesus Christ as testified in Scripture. Now, there's a basis on which we can discuss. You haven't got that common ground when you're talking with a Hindu or a Muslim. Yes, I'm sorry. I wasn't suggesting I was actually going to start by saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying we seem to find it quite difficult as Christians. We seem to fall over backwards to uh, accommodate and understand and, and all that. And I'm, I'm like that too. I find it extremely difficult when it comes to the point of Yes. difference and yes. uh, sort of confrontation. I guess that's something about being British, perhaps. Or... Yes, yes. You know the story about the English lady who was explaining to a black Pentecostal um, that um, although English are so uh, unexcited and, and, and sober in their worship as compared with the black Pentecostals, she said, it doesn't mean that we don't love our Lord, we love him very much, but we English are very restrained in expressing our emotions. And the pastor said, yes, I understand that. I've been to a football match myself. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but, but uh, seriously, uh, I do agree with you. Uh, and of course, there are some good reasons for it. There are many Christians who feel deeply penitent and concerned about the racist attitudes that are so common among us. And, that, uh, and want, as it were, to make sure that uh, there is none of that in their relationship with, say, Asian people who may be Muslims <laughs> or Sikhs or whatever. And therefore, do seem to me to get into the quite absurd position uh, that uh, the gospel is for whites only uh, and, and, and not for everybody. Uh, and I think we've got to resist that and we've got to make it, and I, I, if I may say so, I, I, the, the Indian Christians whom I know in Birmingham uh, feel this very much, uh, that they feel that the Christians in Britain don't, um, don't back them up. They, they almost feel if you're from India, you ought to be a Hindu. Uh, and and um, I think we have got to, I, I, I see both sides of it. I see the necessity for, for great courtesy and understanding to especially the Asian people who in many ways Get a, get a raw deal. But I think we've also got to be quite explicit that um, we, have a, we have a story to tell which, um, which will call into question many of their beliefs. 